Okay, welcome to another uh, Friday night Bible study in Bible time. And we're going to be continuing our series as we walk through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, I gave a lot of history and background and why I'm doing that in the first two episodes of this. You can find it uh, on the podcast if you're confused or like, what is that? I'm not going to retread that ground every week because it was a lot of ground to tread. It was two whole studies to kind of set that up. Um, but you don't need to know all of that in order to follow along. It's just when I when I quote from that confession of faith, that uh, that's gives you a bit of context for it, but you, you can follow along well enough. And we're going to be spending most of our time in Scripture, uh, as we ought to. That's the goal is not to is to utilize the confessions of the past to help give us language to articulate what scripture teaches. That's the idea. Uh, it's not to slavishly follow a confession of faith, not to simply adhere to it and not read our Bibles, uh, which is why we've been taking things slow. Last week, I only got through the first sentence of paragraph one because we spent so much time in uh, the biblical texts themselves. So I'm going to do the rest of paragraph one tonight. Well, you've got through one sentence in an hour last week. How are you going to get through the rest of the whole paragraph? Uh, not as hard as you might think. And I already had the notes prepared from, from last week, and um, it, it's it's more condensed. I mean, we could spend weeks on these subjects, uh, but I'm, I'm giving you a, a flyby, an overview, and again, in, in encouraging and endorsing uh, the adoption of confessional language about these things so that you have definitional categories that you can use uh, in your Christian life, whether it's in discipleship, evangelism, apologetics, uh, whatever it happens to be in your own personal Bible study, you can make use of these things in many different areas. So that being said, uh, I'll pray and ask the Lord for help, and we will get started. Lord, thank you for another day that by your grace we can have life and breath. I ask that you help us tonight to look at your word, to learn from it, to think about it, and then to make use of it in every area of our lives that you would be glorified in that uh, entire process of reading, thinking, and using your word. Help me as I try to articulate these things and uh, help those who are listening that they might hear and be edified uh, by it. Amen. Okay, so last time we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Uh, we didn't go through some of the other things because we're going to get through that in the rest of the chapter. Chapter 1 of this confession is on Scripture, so we're going to be spending a lot of time over the next few months, just, yes, months at this point. <laughs> I'm just committing to it. Uh, it's that important, and I'll remind you that the importance of understanding the nature of the Bible is that when you have 
these kind of fundamental questions about, about who God is, who I am, how I ought to live, and then broadly, uh, as you get into other areas outside of just that immediate you, God, and the world around you relation, you get in things like the family. How, sh- uh, if if you if you're not married yet, then how should you go about getting married? And then when you are married, how should I treat my spouse? And then when you have children, how should I raise my children? Or where should I go to church? What make what is a church? Uh, these kinds of questions are sufficiently answered by Scripture. That was the point from last week. But you need to know further uh, the, the rest of the nature of Scripture. Have that as your foundation, your starting point, which is why we're starting here and why they started the confession with this, to then move on to answering those other questions, which we will do in due time. But for now, we're, we're laying this firm foundation reliable foundation, sufficient foundation on the word of God and then building upon it from there. So that's the idea. So again, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go listen to it. And we covered this first sentence of paragraph one, which says the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so that's what we talked about last week. What we'll be talking about this week is the rest of the paragraph, which I will read, and then we will jump into the biblical text related to it. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. There's a lot there. If you didn't track with all of it, that's okay. That's why we're doing this. We're going to go back through, go slowly, and talk about two things tonight. One, the uh, necessity of special revelation. Before that, wrong order, Josh, Uh, should pull my notes up. That would help. We're talking about natural revelation, which is covered first, the light of nature as it's described, the works of creation and providence. What do they do? What can you know? What can't you know? And what does that knowledge entail? And then from there to the necessity of special revelation and ultimately the, the uh, back to the sufficiency of it to talk about a consequence of the sufficiency, which is the cessation of special revelation. So first, natural revelation. We're going to be in Psalm 19, Psalm 19 to start, and then we'll hop over to Romans 1. And this is going to take probably most of our time. Uh, The last point will just be on the side, and we'll circle back to it later in this chapter. Um, 
but I will mention it tonight. But we'll we'll go into more detail uh, later in uh, the chapter on Holy Scripture. So Psalm 19, and uh, if you're following along, oh, by the way, if you have questions as I'm talking, questions as, as things are going, uh, drop them in the chat. I won't be reading the chat until after uh, I'm, I'm done with this part, uh, get through my notes, um, and then I will answer questions. Uh, if, if you have questions that are unrelated to the topic, go ahead and ask them. I'll just focus on the ones that are related first. And then if I have time, I'll, I'll, I'll get to those other ones um, later on. So, uh, but don't hesitate to ask questions as we go. I just won't read them right away because I got my notes in front of me. I don't have Discord up anymore. So, all right. Uh, natural natural rev- revelation. I always say that too fast and I get the R's all mixed up. Natural revelation. What is it? Well, Psalm 19 gives us the groundwork for it. And actually gives us the groundwork for special special revelation as well in the nature of scripture. So we'll be returning here uh, frequently as we go through uh, this study. But starting in verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth, forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. And they place a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So this is a a key text when you're thinking about what is it that we are to learn about God from the creation that he has made. What do we learn about God? We're going to get into a very specific text that will outline this in Romans 1 in a second. But this is the foundation piece. It tells us of the glory of God. The glory of God. That we know by examining creation, by looking at it, that the creator is glorious. The creator is powerful. The creator is consistent. That that the, the Whatever made all this, whoever made this uh, is mighty. We know that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll know more things, not in this text necessarily, but, but the glory of God. And the glory of God is his attributes uh, displayed. So, so who he is displayed. And we learn other things. And knowing God, we learn things about ourselves as created by him. And we will learn more than just, we will also learn what God requires of us. Uh, simply by existing in God's world as creatures made in his image. So Psalm 19 gives us the, the basic foundation that, that God made all of this, not uh, simply because he was bored, not because he was lonely, but to display himself. To, to, it's not that God, God is not, is not the creation, 
but the creation tells us about who God is. It's a book, basically, that we are to read. Now, what we learn in the rest of Psalm 19, which again we'll visit another time, is that the special revelation of God, the law of the Lord, as it's called in verse 7, the special revelation of God, God's direct speech to humanity, is the controlling interpretive standard that you look at nature through. That man in his natural state in the garden, Adam and Eve, would have been able to understand more from nature than us. Why? Uh, we have the fall. We have fallen natures. Uh, it's affected everything about us, our ability to see clearly and to interpret what nature is saying properly. And so you get people who look at nature and they go, ah, nature is God. No. They're right that, that nature is telling you something about God, but they're wrong about what nature is saying. Nature is revealing the triune God of Scripture. Full stop. No question. But we, because of our fallibility, because of our uh, sinful hearts, interpret the data wrongly. It is not that there is no evidence for God in creation. It is that we refuse to hear it. We refuse to understand it. So Psalm 1 to 6 is very clear uh, that, that nature is, is created, the work of God's hands and our telling of God's glory. And the emphasis from verse 2 to 6 is that it is inescapable, this knowledge. That Everybody knows it, without exception. Whatever it is that nature is communicating, everyone knows it. Now, what they do with that knowledge, how they interpret that knowledge, so they know it, but then they reinterpret it to mean something else. Um, so they possess the knowledge fully. What do they do with it? And that's what we're going to get to in Romans 1. So let's flip over. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. Now, Psalm 19 describes nature in almost a pre-false state. That, that, that this is what, what is being revealed is in the heavens is the glory of God. True. But something's added to natural revelation after the fall. That there's an, God writes another line in the book, so to speak. And that's this. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what we see is that, that nature breaks. It cracks. It groans. Uh, the fall affects everything, not just humanity. Death enters. Disaster enters. 
God opens floodgates of heaven and literally reveals his wrath from on high in the flood and Noah and that whole deal there. Um, so we see immediately Romans 118 that there's something else being revealed now in nature, the wrath of God. In, in every single broken thing in nature, we hear loudly, unequivocally, God hates sin. And he will judge it. And every person who is a sinner, I should say, clarify. That's evident. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So we see that God is active in natural revelation. He's not passive. He doesn't just spin up the world and then uh, expect us to, to sort out our own, but he is making it clear. He, he is making it completely known. And it's evident within them. It's not just outside. So someone could say, well, a blind person can't see the sun and can't see the... And so maybe they're excused from natural revelation. Nope. In knowing ourselves, we know God. Why? We're made in God's image. And you always have immediate knowledge of yourself. Because you're you. <laughs> you can't escape yourself. So even if you were in a completely sealed cave for your entire life, you would still possess this knowledge of God. If you've never seen the sun, never seen the, the, the glorious things that are described in Psalm 19, 1 to 6, you would still possess this knowledge of God because it is evident within you. Because God has made it so. God has created you in such a way that you cannot escape the knowledge of God. Verse 20, for since, his, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, including yourself. So not just the exterior creation, but also uh, your own self-knowledge. Uh, so that they're without excuse. So what we've seen so far is that natural revelation is clear. It's not un the only the only reason that it, it seems unclear is because of the bad and sinful interpretations of it. The, the the twisting of the truth. It's not that God is being unclear. It's not that. Uh, the only thing that the only the only God that can be concluded from nature is the deistic, spin up the world creator or Aristotle's unmoved mover or something like that. No. It is the triune God of Scripture that is made known in creation. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that there is no excuse, there is no defense that can be made by sinful man who rebels against his creator. He can't say, God didn't give me enough evidence. He can't say, God didn't show up. He can't say, God didn't, God didn't tell me that I was going to be judged. by. He can't say any of those things. 
Nature itself stands as a witness against him. God made himself known to you. The heavens declared his glory. They also declared his wrath. You knew. You knew and you persisted in your rebellion. And again, this has been made known since the creation of the world. It's not something that's added later. In creating, as soon as Adam has his first thought, draws his first breath, he also knows God. In that same moment. Being unfallen, he knows him clearly. Where again, we uh, misunderstand, misinterpret the knowledge. Or rather, he, he, he knows him uh, in truth. He, he, he accepts the knowledge. He embraces it. And then later rejects it in the, in the fall. That's what he does. But uh, verse 21, for even though they knew God, so there's, there's, they actually do know him. It has been communicated clearly. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So the, the, the wisdom, quote unquote, that suppresses this truth about God, that misunderstands or, or misinterprets it or twists it, and exchanges the truth of, of the triune God, holds all of us to account uh, for this knowledge of him that he has made clear, they, they, they push it away and say, no, 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 creation means this instead. Humanity is this instead, not image of God, not accountable to their creator. Instead, autonomous, separate, we live how we want. We do what we want. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That is the heart of this rebellion. They, and they profess to be wise instead. But in reality, they have become fools. For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why is he called a fool? Because it's obvious that he's wrong. Knowing God exists is not reserved for theologians and philosophers. It is the obvious, intuitive thing. It usually takes a degree to reject it. So there we have natural revelation. It is clear, universal, but not redemptive. You cannot act upon this knowledge to the best of your ability and get by and have peace with God and be saved. There are some groups that believe this. Um, the the, the age-old question is, what, what about the people who have never heard of Jesus? Things like that. We, we can deal with that later. Um, but one thing that is clear is that the response to this, apart from the gospel, the response to this natural natural revelation post-fall, apart from the gospel, 
apart from God's special revelation and his saving grace is rebellion. That's it. That is the universal reaction by fallen man to this revelation of God. It is, nope, I don't want it. I want nothing to do with my creator. Instead, I will make it up as I go. I will do my own thing. I will be like God, as the serpent so cleverly expressed to Adam and Eve in the garden. I would love to go through the rest of, of the section of Romans 1, but I'm going to skip down uh, to the end here uh, to make that last point very clear. So, so post-fall, God's wrath is revealed from heaven, not just his other attributes and power and divine nature. The curse reveals this wrath and makes known the second death through the first. So, so death is a parable, so to speak. It's a declaration of God's wrath. Physical death is. To let everybody know, so there's no question, it is clear, we are under a curse and we need redemption. Romans 1, 32, uh, after going through the very, uh, we'll, we'll, start in, we'll start in verse 30, or verse 28 for some context. Uh, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God. Note that one, as I've been saying all this time. Uh, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who pra practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That last verse there, very clear, that in knowing ourselves, we know God. In knowing God, we know what he requires of us. And we know that those who break that law of God are worthy of death. And this is why we are with no uh, defense, no excuse. So this natural natural revelation is not sufficient to save, but is it is sufficient to condemn. You do not know just the abstract God of the philosophers or the deist, but the true and living God. His knowledge is inescapable, it is universal, it is clear, but it cannot save you. Even if you stumble into a pseudo-obedience of these ordinances of God that are made clear in nature. It is always polluted and corrupted by your rejection of the God who gave the command. That hater of God part in the midst of all of those sins would make sinful your best obedience. Your righteous deeds would always be filthy rags. And you would always know that those who do such things are worthy of death. And not just physical death, but the judgment of God. And so with that, we need good news. We need special revelation. 
So natural revelation is clear, is sufficient to condemn, it's universal, but it cannot save you. And that fact alone necessitates, therefore, special redemptive revelation. And as I said before, I'm taking a class right now through the 1689, which is part of why I'm doing this here, is to reteach the material uh, with, in my own words, in my own way. Now, I'm not just copy-pasting the lectures, I promise. But I am going to employ things that, I, if I can't say it better, I'm going to quote my professor. And I think this is a, uh, a good argument chain that he creates. I'm going to copy and paste it and put it in the chat, because uh, there's a lot of Bible texts that I'm not going to be able to go through all of them. Um, with you. So I like to just put it here. But I'll read it as well. Yep, too many references. <laughs> too many references for we'd, we'd be here all night if I walked through these slowly. I've, I've gone through some of them. But you may be familiar with some of them. And if you want to pull them up one at a time uh, there so you can read them or uh, follow along your Bibles, I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. Um, he says the evidence is cumulative and finally compelling for the necessity of a special redemptive re revelation. Only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, 16 to 17, which is basically just quoting that text. That, that, that's the only power of God unto salvation. There's no other means of salvation outside of hearing and believing the gospel. But the gospel is revealed in special revelation. Um, and he cites Romans 3, 21. For that, which uh, I will flip over to momentarily, uh, this is now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by, uh, witnessed by the law and the prophets. Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So it's through Christ, witnessed to by the law and the prophets. We talked about, I think, last week. That's just summary for the Old Testament. Um, so, the, so the whole Old Testament and then the Gospels and the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, are this necessary, special, redemptive revelation that reveals the Gospel. Three, men cannot believe and be saved unless the Gospel is preached to them. Romans 10, 13 to 15, you're probably very familiar with that text. How will they be saved unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone goes to them and preaches? It's my bad paraphrase. Point four. Only by knowing the name of Christ through special revelation can men be saved. Acts 4.12, you're probably familiar with that one. There is no other name under heaven by which we might, by which men can be saved. Uh, and the name there in view is Christ, Jesus Christ. Um, and again, remember, name is not just knowing the name. The, like, I can spell the name out. Uh, the, the, the name is... In the Bible, when you see that uh, in the name of Christ or, or or the name for the fame of God's name, things like that, it is communicating all of who they are. So it's so name there really means by knowing Christ. That's what it means. So if you hear Jesus Christ's name, but it's a false Christ, that can't save you. It's only by knowing the true Christ revealed in special revelation that you can be saved. Five, the fact that the gospel must be preached to, preached to all nations shows that it is necessary to salvation. So he cites the Great Commission. 
Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Uh, he just is out of pure inference and says, hey, Jesus wouldn't have sent us to take the gospel to the nations if they could be saved any other way. And this is usually my response to the uh, a common answer to the, well, what about you know the, the remote island? There's never, people there have never heard of Jesus. There's never been anybody there to, to explain uh, who he is to them. Often, apologists, well-meaning, but dead wrong, will say something to the effect of, well, if they are just, if they obey what God has shown them, if they do well with the light they do have, then God will count that in their favor. Absolutely not. One, the text we just walked through in Romans 1 makes it very clear that's not the case, that uh, everyone responds to that light of nature in the exact same way with rebellion and wickedness and hating the, the God who is revealing himself in it. Uh, two, even if they didn't respond that way, and the apologist here, a very wrong apologist, is, is right. Let's say he's right, and that obeying the light of nature would save you. If you if you just if you just followed and just did your best and you never hear about Jesus, then God will will deal with you based on what you do know. So there's an implicit premise in their answer that the light of nature is actually pretty vague and unclear, but as we've seen in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, that's not the case. It's very clear. So, so they have to assume the light of nature is kind of vague and unclear. So if they worship their tribal gods, but they still are good people, quote unquote, then, uh, the, then the, the true God who actually does exist will accept their lives as worthy and, and won't punish them accordingly. The problem is Jesus did everyone a horrible disservice when he gave the Great Commission. If this is true, because it would be better for them to never hear about Jesus. If that were the case. Because when you bring Jesus into the picture, guess what? Now they're responsible for that revelation. On, on this account of things. And what they have to do now is they, they have to respond accordingly to the revelation they now have. So when the missionary comes to these people, they might have been on, on a fine track. But now they hear about Jesus and they're a little skeptical. And they reject Jesus, but they keep doing what they're doing and worshiping their tribal gods. And they would have been saved before, but now they won't be <laughs> because they've rejected Jesus. So the, it, it puts these guys in a real bind when they answer it this way. And they're, and they're trying to, to not offend the unbeliever. But the truth is offensive in many ways. And one of the true things about the unbeliever is that the one who's asking, often asking that question of the well-meaning apologist, you need to tell him that he knows God just as well as the tribal guy does. Say, well, no, the, 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 the tribal guy on the remote island, he knows the God of the Bible perfectly clearly, but he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And so do you. 
And I really want to get at that guy, but today you're the one in front of me. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Uh, th- that's that's the answer. Um, is is that we the, the Lord Jesus gave us a great commission to go to all of the nations and preach this gospel. And on many accounts of, of how to resolve the difficulty, you actually shouldn't do that. But we know we should because Jesus said that we should do it. So that's not how you resolve it. Anyway, number six, the Bible says clearly that the solution to men perishing under the law is the gospel. And so with all of these points together, uh, we see that that redemptive revelation is necessary for salvation. Natural revelation is not sufficient to save. It is sufficient to know. It is sufficient to condemn. But it is not sufficient to save. There must be a gospel preached. Finally, uh, last point here. Um, in the confession, it talks about uh, that that is God who is revealed himself through this special revelation to his church. And afterwards, so after the, this, this revelation happens, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, malice of Satan, and of the world, this revelation is committed wholly unto writing which makes the scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. So it's citing there uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, uh, which is one of my favorite opening lines of any of the epistles. Flip there real quick. I didn't have this uh, bookmarked ahead of time, but here I am. Uh, It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the author of Hebrews here is is communicating a finality to this divine revelation, the special redemptive revelation. It begins with, the fathers in the uh, speaking to the fathers in the prophets, and it ends with speaking to us, the church, in His Son. And once this revelation is is done, it's done. The speech perpetuates itself through the Word, not through new audible revelations not through new prophets, not through new apostles. It's done. Because the point was to get this gospel down and then put it in writing. And so we see here the reasoning for that being the case. Why a book? Why a book? There's three reasons given in the confession, and, and I think these are, are, are good ones. They don't have biblical proof text, really. They're, they're more like inferences. 
but but it's helpful to think about because you get this question sometimes with people like what wh- why did god use a book to communicate himself why doesn't he just plaster a big billboard in the sky uh that everybody can it's very obvious that this is from god and et cetera, et cetera. well one people would find a way to twist it anyway because that's what they do with that's what they did with Jesus when God showed up in the flesh and said, hey, here I am. They still managed to reject him and kill him. So uh, we know that that's not going to work. We looked at a text last week where Jesus makes it clear that even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. But they have Moses and the prophets, so they should hear them. So a book was God's intention and design. And then the confession writers give a couple of reasons why they think, hey, it was committed under writing because it really helped solve these things. One was the propagation and preservation of the truth. The apostles were going to die. And they weren't going to rise from the dead right away. And so we should write down the things that they have said. And so we get the New Testament. And in the propagation of the truth, it's easier to pass books around and faster than passing the apostles around. You can't make a clone of Paul and send him to Ephesus and Colossae at the same time. What you can do is write down a single letter and send it to both churches. Or take the Gospel of Matthew. Man, we, we, we could either send Matthew to every, he could do a speaking tour around the Roman Empire, or he can write down what he's going to say, and then we make copies of it, and we ship it around the empire. So the propagation, and then the preservation of the truth. Bible is, as some of you may know, the most well-preserved text of antiquity, and it is not even close. It's not even close. The Bible has been preserved immaculately, by the good providence of God, and we have no reason to doubt that we have the text of Scripture preserved to this day. Second reason they give, the corruption of the flesh. So putting it down in writing guards against human weakness and fallibility. As we know, uh, (laughs) it doesn't guard against every human weakness and fallibility because people still misinterpret, mishandle, and abuse the Bible. They still tried to add books to the Bible, even though there are very clear condemnations in the Old and New Testament for adding to Scripture and calling it Scripture. So there's that. Um, But the kinds of human weakness and fallibility that it does guard against is, for example, consolidating power in a single authority. Looking at you, Roman Catholicism, uh, you, the the guys in charge need a higher and infallible and standard that can be appealed to by the people under them to check them. That standard is scripture. If they claim that they are the infallible interpreters of scripture, scripture itself witnesses against them. But that's not a thing. So you have recourse in the case of of human corruption 
that you can appeal to a higher authority. Say, actually, the Bible says this, and you're wrong, and it's evident, and you're sinning, and you need to repent, etc., etc. Third reason, the wickedness of Satan and of the world. The scriptures are our weapons of warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's through God's word spoken. Through that means that that he uh, is sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ, that he is putting his enemies under his feet, Satan and the world. Uh, and with, when it comes to the world, he's either, uh, they're, they're either doubling down in their condemnation when they hear the word and hardening their hearts, or they're being made alive again by the Spirit of God through the preached word through that gospel that is necessary for their salvation. And then they get tra- are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son and are saved from Satan and the world and their flesh and are made uh, friends of God, have peace with God, turned from enemies to sons. So the scriptures are the weapons of warfare that we are to use uh, in the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are sufficient, they are necessary, uh, and it is God's sword in the world, is the Bible. So with that being said, uh, that covers paragraph one. Well, uh, paragraph two, which I'll, I'll just cover briefly now, uh, it says, under the name of Holy Scriptures, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old New Testament, which are these. And then they're listed. I won't read all of them for you. There's 66 of them. All of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life, which we covered already in the first sentence last week. So, why do they have to list this? Well, paragraph 3 books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So, remember our historical context for this confession, part of it is distinguishing themselves from Roman Catholicism, which has the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books if you're in favor of them, you call them deuterocanonical. If you're against them, you call them apocryphal. That's kind of how that goes. Um, so I'll call them apocryphal from here on out, but I figured I would mention the other term in case you hear the, the deuterocanonical. That's what that is referring to. It's referring to the apocrypha. Um, they're saying those are not God's word, and they have lots of good arguments and reasons. I have gone through those before in the past in a lot of detail, so if you want to ask about it, I, I can I can give you the, the short version, but I'm going to forego it for the moment and just say it, there's plenty of information out there about this issue. Um, but the 66 books that we do have have great attestation, uh, both in history and in themselves, which we'll look at uh, when we get to paragraph five, maybe next week. We'll see if we can get through paragraph four, which I think we can. Uh, in, in, in uh, less than one sitting. But uh, yeah, so, so paragraph two and three is just a list of the books that are contained in scripture. It says all of these are inspired of God uh, and are the rule of faith and life. 
and no other book is. Doesn't mean books are bad, but they can be there to be made use of in the same way that any other human writing is made use of. They can be good, encouraging, edifying, but they are not the standard of faith and life. So the scriptures are sufficient, the scriptures are necessary, and they are closed. Natural revelation is sufficient to condemn, universal, clear, not redemptive. And there's your summary statement of everything from tonight. So I hope that was uh, informative or just reinforcing if you already knew those things. And next week we'll go into paragraph four and probably five, depending on how how things go uh, for me on my end. And that's about it. So let's pray and then I will look at the chat again and see if there are questions. Uh, and before I pray, as always, more can be said on any of these subjects. Books and books and books have been written. I'm giving you a brief overview, trying to ground it in biblical texts insofar as I'm able. So I do not know everything, as it turns out, <laughs> which is good. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time tonight, and thank you for your word your mighty sword that defeats all of your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Pray that you would make use of it in our lives, that we would wield it uh, firstly upon ourselves and our own flesh, our own sinful desires, and then uh, in our endeavors to be obedient to you and our relationship to the world uh, as we seek to love our neighbors with the truth the gospel preach with the revelation that they need of Christ so they might repent and believe in him and so be saved from their sins as we have been saved from ours. Help us to understand and know your word, study it, and meditate upon it.